1: Um, lots of weeks I start with practical. We try to drive to practical. Um, it's because I think Jesus is practical. I think He cares about our actual hearts and actual souls and actual lives. Um, most of this morning's message, though, is going to seem slightly less than practical. But here's why: um, with with all the craziness that's in the world. With the questions about what's Putin gonna do, <laughs> um, with the craziness of Supreme Court uh, like um, hearings, with I don't know, you just like name your issue of the day, and that that hasn't even touched at um, some of our um, like own heart issues, life issues, just like depression and grief and struggles and excitement and trying to figure out promotions and trying to change jobs and just like all the stuff of life. With all of the craziness, I suppose, um, that if you ask me pastorally, um, what should we do? What should we think? What should we um, change our minds on this week? How do we connect with God in all of this? I I suppose my answer basically boils down to, I think we need to cling to the God of grace. I think we need to cling to the God of grace that we talked about a whole bunch last week. We're going to get back to um, this morning, but this... Giant, um, all gracious, all sustaining, all creating, like Lord of everything that is our God, that has created the universe and upholds it in grace. Okay, so um, let me let me define this word one more time for us. Um, when we when we talk about grace, we're talking about two related things at the same time. One is there's something absolutely gratuitous from God, something that's ab- absolutely free. It's, it's not something that God gives us. God doesn't give us grace because we have good intentions, because we have good willpower, because we have good self-control, because we hoped for the best, because we meant for the best, because of, because of anything else about us. It's, it's absolutely free. If it's not free, it's not grace. Um, the second part of it is, is kind of tied up with that first part, which is um, it's not our own initiative. We don't kick it off. We don't start it. We don't, um, like, finally convince God to give us grace as if, well, all he really needs from us is for us to be sorry enough, repentant enough, to ask in the right manner, in the right way, at the right time, on the right Sunday, or some sort of case, So grace is absolutely free, and therefore, grace has to begin with the initiative of God and not with the initiative of us. So when we declare that God is a gracious God, this is what we mean. And when I say I find great comfort in the midst of great chaos in the world and sometimes in my life, I find great comfort nevertheless in the God of grace, these are the two components that I'm talking about. It's something really good that's free from God and something that's really good that's free from God that is coming precisely because he desires it, because he wills it, because he chooses it, because he accomplishes it, because he does it. We could go on for a bunch of minutes about why that makes any difference in, in our lives. But I have a rather complicated assertion this morning, so I'd rather just jump into the text. Matthew uh, not Matthew, <laughs> we've been in Mark for like two years and I've forgotten what book we're in. Uh, Mark chapter 15, uh, we're starting in verse one. Okay, so um, we are uh, on Easter going to finish the gospel of Mark together, that's in three weeks. Um, so what we're doing here the next couple of weeks is finishing chapter 15 and then on Easter we will preach about the resurrection of Jesus because I, I don't know, that just seemed like a pretty good idea to do on Easter. Um, like, we're trying to, you know, start a new trend. Um, Mark, Mark chapter 15, one, What what we're doing is we're jumping back into the story that we've been in, yes, but we're jumping back into the, the story of the last day of Jesus' life, right? So he has um, spent several years performing miracles, Um, changing the world, pouring himself into a small group of followers. He's got his 12 that we know as the disciples, but then he's got this other class of disciples who are learning from him, being loved by him, being taught by him, all of these things. And, and he starts telling them at some point along the journey, once they kind of have begun to put together that he is the Messiah, that he is the long-awaited king from Old Testament times, that he is the one that is going to fix and restore all things, that he is that Messiah, that Christ. He started telling them that somehow at the heart of what it means for him to be the Messiah, for him to be the Christ, for him to be the king that he says he is, is that he's gotta die And then he's gonna be dead for three days and then he's not gonna be dead anymore. And so he starts teaching them repeatedly over and over and over. I'm going to die. I'm gonna be dead for three days and then I'm not going to be dead any longer. Well, in in. At the end of all of that, we come to um, Passover and Jesus has the last supper with his disciples. He repeats this idea, I'm going to die. In fact, one of you is going to betray me into like, the hands of our enemies who are then going to beat me and mock me and reject me and kill me and I'm going to be dead for three days and then, surprise, surprise, I'm not going to be dead any longer. And so at the last supper, Jesus teaches this, then they go out into the garden, they have this garden of Gethsemane, Jesus pleads with his father, take this cup from me, Lord, I don't want to do this, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And then we have the rejection of Peter from last week. Um, In in the midst there, we've had Jesus tried by his um, religious peers. Remember Jesus is now in Jerusalem. He's living in the areas of Galilee and Judea, the kind of states that make up uh, Israel, um, with Samaria in between. Um, And he's been walking and living and teaching and healing and calling to repentance primarily among the Jewish people. And so then, first trial, he has two trials in the same night. The first one is before the Jewish people, and he is rejected. And then, they don't actually have the authority to kill him, so they take him to the Roman, the governmental official, and that's what we're going to see, Jesus in the presence of Pontius Pilate. Now, early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the scribes, and the whole council. Now we've got four terms there. Chief priests, elders, scribes, council. This means all the people who are powerful and important in Jewish religious circles. They run the temple, they run everything about religious life for Jerusalem, and basically all the other present day Jews. All of these religious people gathered together, they held a consultation, and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Now, I want, I want to point out, here in verse one, it says, delivered him. And you're like, okay, so, so what? I'll get back to that. The whole like, kind of um, weird, uh, opaque thing that I'm doing this morning is predicated on this phrase. They delivered him to Pilate. Verse two, Pilate questioned him. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him. It is as you say. Okay, so we don't get a whole lot of like lead up here in the Gospel of Mark. Mark says, hey, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they rejected him, and then they brought him to the governmental leader, and he just jumps right in, and the governmental leader asks something that we're not quite sure what the accusation was, because we did not even have here in the Gospel of Mark. We have it in some other places. But like in, in, the, in the world of the Gospel of Mark, Mark doesn't even tell us exactly what Jesus is on trial for until from the lips of Pilate, Pilate says, wait, are you the king of the Jews? Now, realize what is happening here in the life of Jesus is the tension is ratcheting up. He, he predicts his death. He says, I'm going to die. One of these days, I'm going to lay down my life on behalf of all my friends. One of these days, I'm going to die for the sins of humanity. One of these days, I'm going to like, do this, and then I'm going to be dead for three days, and then I'm not going to be dead anymore. Now, it's, it's, I, I say it's easy to say that. It's not actually easy to say that, but it's easy to say that when you're not like, in the face of it. But, but then as it, as it approaches, Jesus starts to become overwhelmed and his, his soul is burdened and he's sorrowful, which is why in the Garden of Gethsemane, then he's pleading he's and he's wrestling and, and we see him kind of, um, like fighting is kind of the wrong word, but, but not exactly the wrong word, like fighting with his father saying, like, God, God I, don't, I don't want this. My, I, I, I don't long for this. I don't look forward to this. This is going to be awful. Is there any other way? And then these marauding band of religious leaders marches into the garden and Judas kisses Jesus, and all of a sudden Jesus is arrested. Well, from that first arrest, Jesus is interviewed by the religious authorities who don't have a whole lot of authority, because the Jews are not in control of their own land. They are are living under enemy occupation. like it's, it's, It's a conquered city where the Jewish leaders may think they're important, but in the eyes of the governmental officials, they're not really all that important. And so Jesus, to be tried by these people, is like, it's a big thing, but it's not literally a life and death thing because they can't kill him. And so Jesus kinda like, um, he's, he's kinda snarky, he's kinda cheeky, he kinda like um, go, goes at the religious leaders and you kinda get it because what can you really do to me? But then they handcuff him and they take him to the governmental leader and say, hey, we are going to convince this guy to kill you today. And in the presence of that guy, in the presence of Pilate, Pilate starts off and says, so are you the king of the Jews? Now, what happens in Rome, Rome is this giant empire you may have heard of, um, but Rome is this empire precisely because it's conquered all of the rest of the the, um, ancient world, not all of it, you know, you got China and a bunch of other places, but but like it's local world, it's, it's conquered, and part of the way it rules is Caesar is Lord, Caesar is in charge of everyone else and we don't want kings in this area. In fact, there haven't been kings in the area of Judea and Galilee and Samaria in a long time. There are these other like prefects and prelates and Tetrarchs And all these words are like, I don't know what that means. It means some sort of ruler who's like mid-level management in the governmental system. He's not the king. And so for Pilate to ask, are you the king? Pilate is essentially asking Jesus, are you the person that the Caesar should be terrified of? In fact, are you the person that the Caesar should be so terrified of that I should kill you on his behalf? Because if I don't, I now am complicit in elevating and defending somebody who pretends. To the throne of Israel in a way that is like at odds with the enemy occupying force of the Romans. Right? So, what, what, what Pilate is asking here is a dreadfully serious question Are you the one that I should kill? Are you the king of the Jews? Now, I don't know about you guys, but I think it's one thing to like pro- proclaim your death, say, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die, and then you go through this moment of you're like, I'm, I, I, God, I don't know, I don't know if I can do this, and, and then you like find some, some inner peace and some strength and some, okay, here we go, God has not released me from this, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will, oh my Lord, and then you march and you go. And I imagine Jesus in the presence of the religious authorities like, has some boldness and has some courage, but then here in the presence of the uh, governmental authorities, I think if it's me, I'm like okay never mind like I, I don't really want to die I still think I'm right and I think you're wrong but like I, I don't know I'm not, I'm not actually willing to die for it or maybe I just say well like I, I never claim that like go back and look at the rest of the words of Mark and I, I never stand up and preach a sermon that says behold I'm king of the Jews like Jesus doesn't do that there's all sorts of like sort of legal avenues that Jesus could have taken to like tell the truth but maybe not the whole truth but still nothing but the truth, right? He, he's, he, he, he could defend himself and say some things here that were technically true, even if they missed the spirit of the matter. Or at the very least, he could have just said, right, he could have said nothing. But instead, Jesus goes at Pilate here. He, he has this like sarcastic, like death-defying remark. Are you the king of the Jews? Any, it, ah, this is a bad translation. Um, it's a funny thing. Sometimes I like, don't pay that much attention to the translation I'm reading until I'm here on stage. and I'm like, I don't like this translation. Um, okay, it, it, because it, it is technically true, but like, what, what, what Jesus says is, yep, you said it. And, and that's what our uh, it, translation says that, but it doesn't like, say that with the force that like, you read it. So Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus looks at Pilate and says, yep, you're the one who said it. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, Jesus, what are you doing here? You realize this guy is about to kill you. And you're like mouthing off at him. Because it's not just a sarcastic remark. That's bad enough. It, It is that. But more than that, what Jesus is making plain to Pilate is, hey, you're the one who called me the king of the Jews. And now you are going to be complicit if you do not kill me. Jesus is very much forcing Pilate's hand here. Now, I'm not saying Pilate's like free of guilt. That's not my point. But Jesus is forcing a fork in the road. You said it. What are you going to do about it? Verse three the chief priests began to accuse Jesus harshly. And then Pilate questioned him again. Because Jesus apparently doesn't answer to the chief priest. This time he does go silent, which he maybe should have done in the presence of Pilate, but didn't do in the presence of Pilate, but does do in the presence of the chief priest. Pilate comes back and says, do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. He's just befuddled, bamboozled, like he doesn't know what to do with this guy comes at me, he says that I called him the king of the Jews, and now I'm going to be like in trouble with Caesar if I don't kill him, and now he won't say anything else. Which brings us to, to this point. The thing Jesus is on trial for And apparently, the thing that Jesus wanted to be on trial for, and wanted Pilate to be aware that he was on trial for, is very simply, are you the king of the Jews? Is Jesus king, or is he not? Now, verse 6, at the feast, Pilate apparently used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. Or maybe sometimes he did that, or maybe occasionally he did that, or at least maybe they they asked and like presumed on his goodness. But sometimes this seemed to happen, and maybe any time. Verse seven: The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. So it's like a violent uprising of rebellion against. Rome. And this one violent leader whose name is Barabbas, which is Bar Abba, Bar is son. And everybody that's read the Gospel of Mark, you come and you see Bartimaeus, and Mark translates for you and he says, that means son of Timaeus. And so here we have Bar Abbas, and Mark has elsewhere told us that Jesus prays to Abba, Father, not what I will, but what you will. And all of a sudden we have this guy who is the son of the Father who's imprisoned for a violent rebellion, and Pilate is being asked. Uh, so he's committed murder and insurrection, and the crowd went up and began asking Pilate to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Right, so, so in, in this telling, it's not even that Pilate says, hey, I know, I can just like stir up the crowd and release this. Instead, the, the crowd comes and says, release the son of the father who's leading the uprising against Rome. And we as Christians are like, oh, there's one son of the father there who's leading the real and true and ultimately victorious uprising against Rome. But it's not Barabbas. It's not this son of the father. Right, so we have Jesus on trial for being king of the Jews, for leading a rebellion to conquer and to rule and to reign. And then we have this other guy who's apparently been arrested as well, who in violence is leading and rebelling and attempting to reign. And the crowd, unprovoked by Pilate, says, release the son of the father who leads the violent rebellion. And we ask, is Jesus the king of the Jews or not? What does it mean for Jesus to be the king of the Jews? If Jesus is proclaiming that he's the king of the Jews, does it mean that eventually he will lead a violent uprising rebellion as the son of the father and eventually release his people from the tyrannical rule that they are under? Now, I, I know you guys knowing the end of the story do not think that, but I wonder how much of your like, end times theology, the thing that you think Jesus is gonna do at the very end of things is tied in with exactly this question well yeah jesus came once in gentleness and he was defeated but for him to really be king he is going to return with a violent uprising where he finally and permanently conquers and part of the question of what does it mean for jesus to be the king is wait what's the nature of jesus's kingship So Pilate answered them after, after they came and they said, hey, let out. Uh, uh, they they uh, began asking him to do as he had been accustomed. And Pilate answered them, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. All right, so we've got two major themes in this. The one that's obvious, which is king of the Jews. So three times in this passage we're seeing the phrase king of the Jews, king of the Jews, king of the Jews. Here in verse 10, we have this phrase king handed him over. Now, I pointed out something that you weren't going to understand yet at the very beginning of verse 1. It said, remember this phrase, delivered him. So they delivered him to Pilate. Here, in verse 10, we translate it as handed him over, but it is literally the same Greek word. It's the same Greek phrase. There's zero reason for us to translate it differently other than it has a nice ring to the ears, which is fine. We're gonna come to a third one and then it'll start to click into place and I'll explain where I'm really going with this. So Pilate was aware that the chief priests and not the crowd of people had handed him over. So Pilate's like, maybe the crowd here that wants me to release somebody, that wants me to release the son of the father that's that's leading a rebellion, that wants to be king, like maybe they want me to release this king of the Jews because they are not the chief priests or the elders or the scribes or any of the ruling authorities. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask Pilate, verse 11, to release Barabbas for them instead. Now answering again, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Now, um, I think part of my job as a preacher for you guys is to help the text come alive. Um, honestly, I wasn't ready to make this text come alive for you this morning, right? So, so here, here's what I mean in, in that, is there is something so devastatingly dark about this cry of crucify him, um, that I think it crushes our souls to like see it honestly. And sometimes we do that and we're gonna do a bunch of that on Good Friday here together in our service. You should come to our Good Friday service. It's one of our favorites. Um, but uh, I'm kind of like kicking that ball a little bit down the road. That's a valuable thing to do. It's a, it's a fantastic thing to do with this text, but it's not actually what I'm doing with the text this morning because there's something else that I want to teach you, think I need to teach you that I haven't taught you at least clearly before. And that's where we're going instead. So they they shout back, crucify him. Dreadful phrase. But Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they just shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So all of a sudden, the leaders of the religious peers of Jesus have turned against him and the crowds of the religious peers have apparently also turned against Jesus. And this is no mere like, well, he's kind of down in our favorability ratings. He used to be polling at a 60, and now he's at a 45. No, no, no. Instead of crowning him as the returning king to the city of Jerusalem, this holy city of King David, instead they're saying, kill him, kill him, kill him. That guy's got to die. But are you sure we have this violent insurrectionist? I could kill him instead. And I could go back and I could tell Caesar that I killed the one who claimed to be son of the father who had started this violent uprising. Aren't you like really like crowd? uh, Maybe you don't want what The leaders want, and all of a sudden they coalesce. The leaders of the crowd all together want Jesus to die. And so wishing to satisfy the crowd, this again a devastating phrase. Wishing to do enough for the crowd. It's such a cop-out. He's not convinced by the crowd, he's not now acting in good faith effort. It's well, guess I gotta keep the crowd happy. Here we go. Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, so like beaten and tortured, he handed him over to be crucified. This handed him over is now the third time that we've had the same Greek word that has been translated three different ways in our text. Well, I guess it's really two ways, but we've got two different actors. So delivered over by the chief priests and the rulers to Pilate handed over by the chief priests because of envy, and now Pilate has Jesus scourged and hands Jesus over to be crucified. Okay, here's what I wanna do, is I'm gonna do like a nerdy Greek study here for you, um, because this, this word group um, is translated in a million different ways in your New Testament, and you miss a big part of what the rest of the New Testament says is going on here. Okay, so it's going to take me a little while to build my case. It's going to feel a little bit like academic, but I beg you, please stay with me. The payoff is great. Let, let me return to setting our scene there um, th- this way. We, we've already noticed Jesus, in the presence of Pilate, answers cheekily, right? He says, do it, kill me. I'm the king of the Jews. You said it. Let's do this. And then he goes silent. And then by the end of this little passage, by the end of the passage, Jesus is handed over. He's been like tied up and put in chains and taken out of his control and he's put himself entirely in the control of his enemies. He has been delivered over, handed over. He's been paradidomied. Now, it doesn't matter at all, but this Greek word is paradidomy. It sounds like the pair he did owe me. Um, like if somebody owed you a pair of sunglasses paradidomy you don't you don't ever need to know nobody else is ever going to talk about it um but but this is the word and what i'm just going to tell you over the next couple times is this word translated very differently um that you understand very differently is still paradidomy now here's the thing sometimes we come to words and we use like the same word in vastly different ways but as a native speaker like you don't even consider the second meaning you you just like, by context, you understand which of the meanings is in play. We all do that naturally. Sometimes we have to be really careful when we're translating from another language, like Greek, into English, that if it's got one meaning in view, we don't accidentally translate it as a second one. Because we, we do a lot of damage to the text, and we pretend things are related when they're not. But sometimes, by happenstance or accident, We take a single idea in the original language and translate it in a whole bunch of wild ways and divorce concepts that the New Testament actually has married together in ways that are strange and compelling and reveal to us something about the heart of God. Okay, see, here's basically where we're going. This act of paradidomy is going to reveal to us what the grace of God actually is. That's what the whole rest of the New Testament is gonna argue, and let me show you this here. So Jesus is handed over because of his own provocation. So one of the things we might ask here is, did Jesus hand himself over? Right, the chief priests handed him over to Pilate and Pilate handed him over to be crucified. But like, was Jesus active here? Jesus has been telling people for ages, hey, I'm going to die. He says it this way in John, in the Gospel of John, he says, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. So is Jesus the one who handed himself over? You're like, no, like it, it just doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't hand himself over. The chief priests and the scribes hand him over to Pilate, who hands him over to be crucified. Except for this line of thought. This same word, paradidomi, occurs seven times in chapter 14. Every time it occurs, so we're in chapter 15. If you go back one chapter, it's chapter 14. I told you this was gonna be academic. Keep up. Seven times in chapter 14, this same word, paradidomy, occurs, and every time that it occurs there, it's translated as betrayed. Behold, my betrayer, Judas, is at hand. Behold, my perididymier Judas, is at hand. Judas, the betrayer, betrayed Jesus into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes who betrayed Jesus into the hands of Pilate. Well, we say delivered over or handed over, but but all of it is chained together. They chained him. They took him against his will. Judas did this in an act that we call, rightly, betrayal, and yet in a stripped down way it's just handing over what judas does is the same that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and all the religious authorities do and the same thing that Pilate does so all of a sudden we've got three very different kinds of actors one that's in jesus like inner circle that knows him that trusts him that jesus trusts that jesus knows has been like living his life for years together with jesus he betrays jesus in that he hands jesus over Then we go out a a circle and we have Jesus' religious peers and they hand him over. And then we go out a a circle and we have somebody that lives in the same city but isn't part of like the religious in-group and he's a governmental in-group instead who also betrays him. We got betray, betray, betray or hands over, hands over, hands over. It's paradidomy, paradidomy, paradidomy. Seven times in chapter 14. Now part of the reason that we start to see that this word starts to matter a ton is because Mark keeps repeating it over and over and over and over and over. He never uses a substitute for what Judas does to Jesus. And he never uses a substitute when he uses the noun about what Judas did to Jesus. So we translate it as in the English, every time Judas betrayed Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus. Jesus. Judas, the betrayer, betrayed Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus. Even in Mark chapter 3, all the way back then, now Judas, who is the one who's eventually going to betray Jesus, it's the same word, paradidomi, 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 paradidomi. Now, the reason that this starts to matter is you hear this word often enough, and you're like, oh, Mark is doing something with the word paradidomi here. And then you come to chapter 15, and three times in a row, he uses the same word, And tells you the paradidomy happened by the leaders of Israel, not just by Judas. And then he comes down here, and the last thing that happens when Jesus is sent to the cross is Jesus was finally paradidomied to the cross. Now, um, interestingly, it's also the verse Jesus starts to use multiple times when he talks about his own death. Sometimes he says, Behold, the one who's here at table with me like one of you whom I trust, whom I love, who is like in my inner circle, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to appear to me. So Jesus uses this word then. Jesus also uses it. In his famous chapter nine and chapter 10 places where he says, but behold, for you guys to understand who the king is, you have to understand that I'm going to die. I'm going to be dead for three days, and then I'm not going to be dead anymore. But that's actually not the way he starts. The way he starts that, before he says, I'm going to die, I'm going to be dead for three days, and then I'm not going to be dead anymore, he says, I'm going to be paradidomied, into the hands of the rulers. I'm going to be paradidimied by the scribes and the chief priests and those in authority, and I'm eventually also going to be paradidimied by the Gentiles, or at least to the Gentiles. So here's what, let me read a direct quote, Mark uh, chapter 10, verse 33. Jesus says, behold, we're heading to Jerusalem, and there the Son of Man, me, Jesus, will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. So two times, the... I will be delivered to the chief priest. I will be paradidimied to the chief priest. And then he ends, and then they will paradidimie me over to the Gentiles. Okay? So it, my, my only point that I've really made so far is for you to understand that this significant word is being used over and over and over and over and over by Mark in a way that our ears have not been trained to hear, but would have been unmissable in the Greek. Because it is the same word. Different actors, different speakers. Jesus says this. Mark says this. Pilate himself says this. Paradidomy, 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 paradidomy. In the gospel of Mark, if you want to know what happened to Jesus, he was paradidomied. He was delivered over to the chief priests. He was delivered over by the chief priests, to Pilate, he was delivered over by Pilate to the cross. He was delivered over by Judas to the chief priests, who right? like over and over and over. And Jesus says, "I'm going to be paradedomede." Okay, now here, here's the payoff. Um, it's not just me that thinks this about Mark. This is the way that Paul thought about the gospel in his New Testament letters as well. Here's what he says in Romans eight thirty two the god who didn't spare his own son but delivered him over for us all how will he not also how, how will he not also with him freely give us all things so this is romans 8:32 so this is like one of the high points of the entire corpus of paul's texts paul says you realize that it's really god who paradidomied me jesus And in fact, grace came through the paradidomy. This is what he says. He will freely give us all things. He will grace us all. He will entirely grace us because he paradidomied his son. And now we have the thing that Judas did to Jesus that is the betrayer, God the Father has apparently done to Jesus. Judas did it. The chief priest did it. Pilate did it. And now somehow the father did it but actually, it's not just the Father. If we look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, or Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, or Ephesians 5, 25, or several other places, I'll, I'll read you two of them. Um, here's what Galatians two twenty, in the mouth of Paul says. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul's talking about his own sufferings. Paul's this guy who used to kill Christians. Then he met Jesus and said, oh, I'm sorry, I've been killing all your brothers and sisters. And Jesus says, instead of, murdering you now I'm going to give you grace because that's what I do so now go tell everyone who I am go tell them that I'm the king and so Paul starts doing this and he starts suffering too in the name of Jesus and he says I've been crucified together with Christ it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, he paradidomied himself for me. When Paul summarizes the gospel about what God did, about how God brings grace, he says, the father paradidomied the son and gave us grace. What Jesus has done for me, the way that I know that he loves me so, the reason that I am willing and desire even to be co-crucified together with him, the reason that I find my life in him, the reason that he is my all and my everything is because he paradidomied himself for me. Let me give you one more and then we'll kind of back up, back up and we'll um, uh, wind up here. So 1 Corinthians 11.23, we actually use this verse sometimes for our communion text because here's what Paul says. Um, he's, he's introducing, he's reminding everybody of, of the last supper and he's telling them about Jesus breaks the bread, he blesses it, he gives it, he blesses the cup, gives it, and all of a sudden there's first communion, right? Here's what Paul says in First Corinthians eleven twenty three: 23. I received from the Lord, from Jesus. So Jesus gave me something of my teaching. He helped me to know who he was. He gave me this gospel. I, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. So Paul is all of a sudden starting to say, the gospel that I've received, something about Jesus was paradidomied to me. And the reason that that's important is because the second half of the sentence, that which I received from the Lord w- was, uh, was that which was paradidomied to me. And that's the same thing that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was paradidomied took bread. L- l- let me read this um, clean one time for you. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night which he was betrayed took bread. So all of a sudden, Paul is like, hey, what happened is Jesus paraded by the Father, Jesus paradidimied himself. Judas me Jesus. And then the chief priests and the religious authorities paradidimied Jesus. And then Pilate paradidimied Jesus. And now the thing that has happened is all of this tradition, all of this gospel, all of this truth, all of this goodness has been paradidimied to me that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and paradidimied it to you. And all of a sudden, we're like, wait, Paradidomy is communion? And paradidomy is somehow in the gospel? And, and we, we have like wild questions that start to circulate that, that I think are starting to get at some of the heart of some of the mystical, big, mind-blowing stuff that's going on in the Greek New Testament in ways that we completely miss, because we're not like because we don't realize that delivered over and handed over and betrayed and uh, gave himself up for us. And all of these are the same word over and over and over and over. and we're like, "Oh my gosh, the gospel is that Jesus paraditame." me. Okay. All right, so so here's kind of where I, I hope all of you guys are right now, is, okay, I guess the gospel is something about Jesus' paradidmy to himself, but I like, cool, I kind of get it, I kind of see it, but, huh? All right, so, so, so I think I kind of have you there, right? Hopefully. Maybe, maybe you know more than that, and that's great. But here's my point in all of this. Jesus is active and not Passive. You understand that the grace of God is always active and not passive? The grace of God is absolutely free and the grace of God is therefore initiated by God and given by God freely and of his own desire, of his own actions, of his own initiation and not by ours. So Jesus here, we see him and we have some suspicions of, wait, he seems active here. Yes, he's like turned over by Pilate but he's the one provoking Pilate saying, you said it, you called me the king of the Jews, what are you gonna do about it? And then we come to Paul and we're like, Paul sees the same thing and Paul actually says the same thing and Paul actually ties the whole of our salvation to this idea. This God who loves you so much that he paradidomied his own son. Will he not also grace you entirely? Here's the thing that I think has made me worship this week. Which is the whole reason that it's worth doing a little bit of academic exercise, academics is interesting. It's fine. It's fun. But if that's all we do today, like I, 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 I don't, I don't like this. I don't, don't want to do that. It's not worth my. It's not worth your time. Much less mine. I'm over here sweating. Who cares? The reason it's worth it is because what Paul and Mark and the rest of the New Testament are trying to do, they are trying to illuminate something that has been secret about the very nature of God. We've kind of done this. I'm, I'm not telling you anything new here, but the pieces that we've kind of drawn out so far lead us to this. God is the God. What it means for him to be God what it means in his inner being, what his nature is. God is the God who turns to humanity and gives himself up to us and for us in love. Who is God? God is the one who hands himself over The same way that Judas put Jesus in shackles and betrayed him. The same way that the religious authorities put Jesus in shackles and betrayed their own Yahweh, their own God. The same way that Pilate washes his hands of of the whole affair and binds him and sends him to the cross. Our God is the self-binding God. Our God is the self-giving God. Our God is the God who paradidomies himself. Yes, the father paradidomies the son, but this Jesus, I've been crucified together with him and I live with him. The life that I now live in the flesh is not me alone, but I live together with him precisely because he loved me and he paradidomied himself for me. Who is our great God? Our great God is not the one who conquers by violence and bloodshed. He's not the most powerful because he's the obviously most powerful. He's not the most powerful because he will bind all of us. Our God at the very core and heart and real center of his being is the God who allows himself to be tied up. The one who wills himself to be tied up. The one who chose to become human with the view in mind that eventually he was going to be tied up and that his being tied up was going to lead to gratuitous, over-the-top, beautiful, worship-inspiring grace for you and me and everyone who ever has this good news about the God who's paradidomied, paradidomied to them. Sometimes we get in these long debates about, give me one minute, I'm a little long here. Um, If you want to understand my theology, and it's not that that's like y'all's life goal, but sometimes I'm weird and y'all don't know what to make of me and y'all are like, are you you progressive? Are you not? Like, what do you think about the Lutherans? Here's the thing, right? And and I know I'm weird. Here's the reason that I'm weird. Um, I think, most of us, if we are theologically trained at all, and we've spent much time in like church seminars and these things, I think the version of the gospel we've gotten is very Lutheran and we're like, well, um, when you talk about impartation versus imputation and some of these things, and like we get to uh, explaining and understanding the the gospel in these very forensic terms that that are from the New Testament, like forensic in the sense of there's a law court, there's a trial, and there's something that's like, um, that's that's changed about the status, and and the way that we understand that is imputation versus impartation, and you don't have to be keeping up with me, It's, it's fine if you don't. But but for those of you who do and sometimes wonder, where are you coming from? My basic view is that salvation is is never merely forensic. Salvation is also ontological. So New Testament speaks of these things in the same categories. But what happens is salvation, the gospel, isn't just good news about our legal status. The gospel is somehow that we have been entrusted with God himself. And that changes the whole of our humanity. It changes our nature. It changes our hearts. It changes our minds. It begins a new kind of life that we rightly identify as new birth, as being born again as being made alive together with Christ even as we've been crucified together with him because the life I now live the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and paradigmied himself for me. This idea about the legal ramifications of the cross, all of that's good and true and I want you to know that, but I don't want you to only know that. The legal ramifications of the cross come from the ontological ramifications, like the real actuality like flesh and blood and soul and like makeup of the world reality of what Jesus is doing on the cross when he paradidomies himself for us and to us. So this idea is grace. This is salvation. This is gospel. This is the nature of God wherein we see in actuality and in truth what the action of God really is. But wait, what does the cross accomplish? What does the cross do? What does it mean? This is what it means. The cross is where we see the self-giving God self-give, the self-binding God self-bind on our behalf. We see this in this wild, entangled strand of paradidomy. Let me close with this. One of the things that we might ask about this passage Jesus shows up, Pilate says, so are you the king of the Jews? Well, is Jesus the king of the Jews? Well, yeah, But and then we start like couching of what it means for Jesus to be the king of the Jews. And then we have these questions that we're like, I don't know what, what quite to make of it. Is Jesus the violent r- ruler who just failed in his initial rebellion and he's gonna eventually win in his final rebellion? Like what is the nature of the king of the Jews? What is his reign going to look like? What is his kingdom going to look like? What is his authority look like? I think most of us at some level still expect Jesus to eventually look like Barabbas. Like, nah, that's the true king of the Father. That's the true son of the Father. That's the true King. That's the true insurrection that we expect because violence is the only thing that we've ever seen in this world win how do you answer a Vladimir Putin if you can't respond in violence? These are the kinds of questions we ask. I have answers and I have no time to answer that for you right now. My answer basically boils down to this though. If this is who God is, if the God who made the universe and upholds the universe moment by moment by the word of his power, as Hebrews 1 stipulates about Jesus, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these final days, He has spoken to us through His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, the Son through whom He created the world, who upholds the universe by the word of His power. If there is that Son and He has a word of His power, what does His power look like? What does His reign look like? What should we do? What should we expect? Should we become more forceful and more violent? Who is our king? Behold, our king. This is the kingship of Jesus. Paradidamy. Our God conquers by being conquered. Our God sheds blood, but apparently it's his. Our God binds all the evil of humanity somehow in himself and to himself. This is who our God is and we stand and worship in awe. Let's pray. Jesus, I want you to be this kind of king. Jesus, whether I want you to be or not, you are this kind of king, but I want to know you as this kind of king. I want to worship you as this kind of king. I want to be with you as this kind of king. I want to live out my life with this Sense of awe and worship and affection and joy that the God who exists is the God of paradigm. Lord, could that be true? Could this upside down good news really be so fantastic? Hear us as we sing, fill us with your spirit as we sing, renew us into this vision of your kingdom because you love us and you made yourself for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
0: Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday Then go to Redemption, Hou. Com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.